We are going to talk about the festival of Sukkot, or called the Feast of Nations, uh, sometimes called the, the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It comes by many different names, all of which are correct, and you're going to see why tonight. This is going to be a two-part thing as well. Uh, one of them I will actually do during Sukkot. Tomorrow night we are going to have our kickoff, campfire and whatnot. And uh, so this one is going to give you a little bit about what it is. And then when we speak on it this week, part two is going to deal with how Jesus literally lived it out. And just like Passover, we know that he was the Passover lamb and he came at Passover time, but he was also atonement. But atonement is foreshadowing his future coming. It's the same thing with tabernacles. It is going to be fulfilled completely in his return, but when he was here the first time, he lived it out, and he lived it out perfectly. And this is the thing that just blows me away. We're not going to get to it tonight, but you really, truly cannot understand John 8, 9, 10, the New Testament, without understanding this festival. You have no idea why he is calling himself the, the light of the world or... Um, writing in the dirt with you know the, the woman caught in adultery or any of these things. It is all about this festival. And it, that just ought to kind of give you a little taste of what is to come. But we see here in 1 Kings 12.26, maybe just a little moral lesson first. It says, Jeroboam said in his heart, now, now let me give you background here. Solomon has now died, so Solomon gave his kingdom to Rehoboam, his son. Rehoboam is not as wise. He listens to his younger buddies and friends rather than the older, elder people. And as a result, the kingdom is divided, and Jeroboam takes ten of the tribes and becomes known as the northern kingdom of Israel. In the meantime, Rehoboam is in Jerusalem, and he has two main tribes. So the 12 tribes are split into 10 and 2. And Jeroboam is now you know, this, facing this new uh, situation that he's in of, I've got 10 tribes, how am I going to lead these people? And how am I going to keep them on my side to keep them from leaving the church, you might say? How am I going to keep them following me? So Jeroboam said in his heart, this is kind of what he's thinking. Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. These ten tribes might want to go back. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So it's kind of a competition in the church right now. The problem is, is God had said that if you were going to make any sacrifices, the sacrifices had to be done in Jerusalem. So what's Rehoboam going to do? I can't let them go and do what God told them to do, so I've got to twist what God said in order to keep my following. That's literally what is happening here. And I can't help but see a parallel that many pastors don't want to talk about the Sabbath or the festivals or the law of God for the exact same reason. We have to keep people in our church. We've got to keep, if I preach this, too many people might leave. 
And then what are we going to do? We're going to have to close the doors. And I think part of the reason that this is happening is because we try to do it on our own and the things after our own hearts rather than having a heart for the Lord, a heart for Jesus. And when you understand the Sabbath or the festivals or whatever, and you understand that this is not about the law, this is about Yeshua. It is about Jesus. It puts a whole new meaning on it. Today we were talking with my family in regards to truth, that all we have to do is speak truth, and truth just has a way of piercing the hearts of people. It doesn't make sense. It goes against cultural norms. It goes against um, the, 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 the programming of the world. I can't think of the word, the, the demographics and all of these research things that we have to do and surveys to make sure that our church you know, is going to grow against all the programming. Truth is what we need. And if truth is preached, they will come. Period. And I have said this for years and years and years. I remember years ago when we started Bible study back in the basement of a teacherage. We had a Bible study for an hour where kids, high school kids, were coming and listening because we would talk about truth. It wasn't just a bunch of fun and games and whatever. It was a Bible study and kids came. And I was always at awe. It's like, why, will, why are they coming to, to hear little old me, I, I'm a terrible speaker, I, I, I fumble through everything, I certainly can't lead music, I, you know, all of these things, and yet people would keep coming. And the only thing, the only reason is because we would talk about truth. And I really think that whether it be kids or adults, they want to talk about things that matter. That's really what they want, and they want to know what truth is. I still remember we uh, would be teaching and preaching out at Mona parking lot when we would do the street evangelism there in Kearney. Week after week after week, we were there faithfully, and I still remember some guy coming up that we had talked to many a time and just you know really didn't give us the time of day, and he came up and he said, my dad killed himself this week, and I wanted to come and talk to you guys because I knew you would tell us the truth. You would tell me. Maybe that the world doesn't know right now. Maybe they look at you funny or they even ignore you because you want to follow the word of God. But let me tell you, when it hits the fan, they're going to know where to come to. If you're standing out. If you're separate. That you don't look like the rest of the world. But I think that this is exactly the situation that we live in a world where there are a lot of Jeroboams who are saying in their heart, what can I do to grow this? What can I do to keep this going? What do we have to do to, you know, uh, win people over? One of my favorite phrases, I don't even remember who said it, but what you win them with is what you win them to. If you win people with music and coffee shops and, you know, dynamic preaching then as soon as the preacher's gone or the coffee, you know, a Starbucks opens up in, in the church next door, they're gone. But if you win them with truth, they're going to stick around as long as truth is being preached, no matter how bad the music leader might be. Okay? No matter, at least they might go away and come back, right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
point being, though, is truth is what it's about, and we have to have a heart for truth. Verse 28 continues, and it says, Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's too hard. It's too hard for you to go all the way to Jerusalem to do this, even though God told you to do it. It's too hard for you to keep these festivals because, you know, our work schedule doesn't fit this. It's too hard to, you know, I I, want to do the fun ones like we talked about last week, but it's too hard to do the fasting because, well, as we talked with uh, my family this week, you know, she was sad that it was going to hit Wednesday because she had to babysit. She didn't want to fast when she was babysitting. And so she did, but the point is, is we can find excuses all over the place not to do these things. We can find things in our own heart. Well, notice it says that here are your gods. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Aaron said in Exodus 32 when Moses was long time in coming and he puts this gold in the fire. Out comes this calf. He says, here are your gods that led you out of Egypt. Notice they're not getting rid of God at all, you know, completely. They're just saying, listen, we don't need to worship God the way you want. Here's God. This is God. He's the one that led you out of Egypt. He's the one that cares for you. It's still God. But this is what we call idolatry, forming and fashioning a God after your own heart, after your own desires, making it look like what you want it to look like. Aaron made that golden calf. Jeroboam is making a calf. Why? Because that's what the culture was used to. And the flesh always wanted to go back to the culture. Keep in mind, these people, all they knew, they grew up in Egypt. They are Egyptian through and through. Every single one of them was born in Egypt, left Egypt, and they were very familiar with the calf and uh, cow worship of Osiris and whatnot in Egypt. And so this is something familiar to them. It's, It's something that connects with their flesh quite well. I can't help but ask, has the world's traditions and culture of America or wherever we grow up, things that maybe aren't necessarily found in the Bible, have they become the God that has led you out of sin? Here is your Jesus that died on the cross for you. Here is your God that led you out of Egypt. I know the word says this, but this is easier to do it this way. All I know is that I think it has become a God for us. And we have to ask, would we rather give up the culture or the gods that we have created to follow the Bible's teachings? Or do you want to just make it easy? Because that's what's going on. In verse 31, it says, He made shrines on the high places and he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Keep in mind what God's word said is that if you were a priest, you had to be from the line of Levi. And so he's saying, you know what, it doesn't matter. Because 
you, if you want to be a priest, we're going to let you be a priest, and you can be one. It doesn't matter if you're from Levi. We've got our own rules now. I can't help but think of many churches today who are taking pastors from every class of people, forgetting that there are guidelines that Scripture has said. Guidelines that say if you are going to be a preacher, a pastor, an elder, that you should be a husband but of one wife, that you should have a good reputation, that you should be able to control your children, uh, that you should have a good reputation, that you should be following God's word. And yet today we have churches blessing your pets. We've got churches accepting homosexuality, denying God as you know, the creator in a young earth, you know, evolution. We've got social justice and critical race theory and all these anti-gospel teachings. It's everywhere. Because once you start compromising, to keep that compromise going, it just, there's got to be more compromises. And that's, I think, where we have landed. Verse 32 says, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in in Judah. We're going to have a feast like the one they do, something similar, but on a day that I want. You know, again, Christmas, it's pretty much just like Hanukkah, but it's on a day of our choosing in a sense. I mean, it's at the same time of year, roughly. Easter is very similar to Passover, isn't it? Thanksgiving is very similar to what we're about to go into here at Tabernacles. It's even a a harvest festival. Sunday, I mean, it's very close to Sabbath, the Sabbath. I mean, can you see how almost everything that we as Christians do has... I don't know if I'd call it an antithesis, but it has something. What's that? A counterfeit. counterfeit. There you go. So close, but there's something in the Bible that's talked about, that Jesus even did, that the apostles even did, but the counterfeit, though close, you can't find in the Bible. So is this happening? in our world today. It goes on in verse 33, So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel. Is anything different in the new covenant than what was going on here in the old? Jeroboam was under the old covenant, and so it's easy for us to say, yeah, but that was back then, now we're in the new covenant. It's different. Well, let's go to the new covenant. Let's see what it says. the new covenant says, God loves you, here's a flower. Exactly. Yeah. It's all about love, no accountability, no responsibility. Just say the name, Jesus. Call on him, you're going to be saved. doesn't matter how you live your life. 2 Timothy 4.3, under the new covenant says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. That sounds like Jeroboam following his own heart. 
because they have itching ears, they're going to heap up for themselves teachers. And it goes on to say, who will say what their own itching ears want to hear. You can gather around you people who will get on your side. We can do this all day long, find pastors. You know, maybe some of you have gone, or some of your loved ones, because they're concerned about you, have gone and talked to their pastor about you. And they can gather around them these pastors who will agree with them, but yet it's not the Bible that they're agreeing with. It's a group of people that are like-minded. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded, that's, that's like having a foot in both worlds. I want to I you know, follow the Lord and I also want to follow our culture. We have to make those decisions, folks, because listen, Daniel today in his message, I thought it was so good in challenging us in saying, you know, where our desires are, that really shows you where your heart is at. Do you have a desire to to keep the Sabbath, to keep these festivals, to follow the word of the Lord? Because that's what the new covenant was, right? He was going to put the law in your heart to give you a desire to follow him. And if we don't have a desire to do those things, maybe we need some heart surgery. Maybe we need to examine ourselves. And that's why I think what we're entering into is so important. Revelation 18.4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. I don't think it's an accident that virtually every counterfeit that I have mentioned has its origins in Babylon. Isn't that interesting? And yet, the Bible in the New Covenant... In the end times, God is saying, come out of her, my people. Come to me. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean. Wait a minute, this is unclean. This is New Testament here. We don't talk about unclean things, do we? What's that even mean? Well, I'm going to let Scripture tell me what it means rather than me deciding what I want it to say. And if I let Scripture tell me, Scripture makes a a distinction between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. And it says, and then I will receive you. So, are we truly separate? Are churches making conscious efforts to be separate? Or are we blending in with the culture, making sure that our surveys tell us you know, what we need to do to adapt to the culture, to adapt to the demographic around us. How is the church being separate today? I mean, if we, let's not say how they're not being separate. Let's say how are they being separate? Well, they give money. They love on people. You know, it's interesting, I... I know people who are ungodly and their friends are probably more faithful than many Christian people that I know. 
If they're in trouble, they've got friends right there next to them. They're loving. They're helping. I'm not saying Christians don't do that, but is there truly, are we truly separate? In what way? The only thing that can truly make us separate is to follow the Word of God wholeheartedly. And let me tell you, it will. The Jews throughout all of history, I think when we're done with Revelation, I'm going to take a little trip and teach Jewish history and its application to the church. Because one of the things that you're going to see is that they were always separate. They dressed differently than the world. They ate differently than the world. They lived differently than the world. Everything about them was different. They never fit in. And as a result, they were always persecuted because they never fit in. But yet they were separate. And yet Jesus warned us that, listen, the world will hate you because of me. Because he expected you to be separate. And he knew when you stand up for truth, when you look different, you dress different, you eat different, you act different, you're not going to be accepted by the world. But if we're not truly separate, you'll probably get along pretty well. Is God calling us here in the end times, like we see in these verses, to wake up? And it's time to, to be different and not try so hard to blend in with this world, to blend in with our friends, to blend in with the, uh, the church even? Because really the church should be the one that looks different. But how are we different? Acts 18, verse 20 and 21, I want to show you that the apostles were different. Under the new covenant, they kept these festivals. It says in verse 20 and 21, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, talking about Paul, he did not consent but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, I have a little note on this verse because most or a lot of the translations, the newer ones, do not have, I must by all means keep this feast in Jerusalem. It's in the King James. It's in the New King James. It's not in the ESV. It's not in the NIV. So we'll let this one slide. Uh, it's, it's in the text, the textus, textus receptus, which is which the King James is from. But nonetheless, in this one, Paul is saying, I got to keep this feast in Jerusalem. Now, if this is the only one we would have, I would say maybe, you know, maybe there's some error that maybe shouldn't really be in this text, but it's not unique to the rest of the Bible, so I kind of think that this is supposed to be in there. Acts 20, verse 16, says Paul was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem to keep Pentecost there in chapter 20. Why is Paul so concerned under the new covenant to keep these festivals? If Jesus taught him that they're done. People might say, well, it was just a witness. That's all. It was just a witness to him. I don't think so. We're going to see more verses. Acts 24, verse 14, it says this. 
However, I admit, Paul speaking here, that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Doesn't sound to me like Paul was saying, hey, I, I'm done with these things. He's saying, I accept everything in the law and the prophets. You go to chapter 25 in verse 8. Paul made his defense. He's been arrested here. He's standing before Felix or Festus here, and he says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Let me tell you, not to keep the festivals would be going against the Jewish law. But he says, I've done nothing wrong against these things. The only thing he's going to go on and say, the only thing these people are upset about is because I'm preaching about a resurrection of the dead. That's what's ticking them off. He wasn't ticking them off because they weren't doing the festivals. He was making them angry because he was teaching about a resurrection in Jesus. So why did Paul keep these festivals then? Seems to me because he loved the law and he loved Jesus. That he was keeping them because he knew Jesus. Not to get to know Jesus, but because in doing that, he was remembering and looking forward to Jesus. That's what these festivals are about. Part of the problem is the world doesn't look at these as Biblical festivals, they look at them as Jewish festivals. Something that this is just a Jewish thing. No, 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 this is a, a Jesus thing. And I think that if the church truly would take the time and put their bias aside and say, I'm going to study this stuff because it's in the Bible, I think that they would truly then begin to find, oh, this isn't about a works righteous thing that you have to do to be saved. Oh, this isn't about a Jewish thing. This is about understanding Jesus. This is because it's in the word. This is because it's in the law and the prophets. And this is exactly what Jesus used and the apostles used to tell the world about him. Jesus even said, these are the scriptures that speak of me. And when you realize and you're looking for Jesus in them, I don't know how you can dig in your heels or look down on somebody for keeping them if it's about Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe there are some people out there who keep it and they forget. Jesus is just kind of shoved aside and they're doing it because it's in the Bible and God said to do it, so I'm going to do it because it's just a law. Just like there are people today who will say that if you don't do this in my church or do that in this church or believe this in this church, that you're not saved either, right? That somehow you have to believe a you know, certain questionable doctrine, dress a certain way, look a certain way to be a Christian. That's not what we're saying is that you have to keep the festivals to be a Christian. What we're saying is this is about Jesus and if you do it, you'll be blessed and understand Jesus even more. So is this festival for you? For your fun? I mean, 
a lot of you have been looking forward to tabernacles. Is it going to be because of the social event of hanging out at the campfires and, you know, having that kind of fun, getting to camp out a little bit? Going to relax, take a few days off of work? Or are you going to celebrate this because it's about Jesus? And this is about us learning about Him, celebrating Him, praising Him, growing together as a body of Christ, digging into one another's lives, the body of Christ. Remember Jesus said that, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? The disciples said, and he said, when, you, when this person was thirsty and you didn't give him something to drink, then you didn't give me something to drink. When, when this person was in prison and you didn't come and visit them, you didn't come and visit me. But when we invest in one another's lives this week, that's about Jesus. You're investing in Jesus in caring for one another and investing in one another. Acts 21, verse 20 and 24, Paul goes to Jerusalem and the people have heard a rumor. The rumor is, is that Paul is preaching against Moses and the customs of the Jews. So to show that this is just a rumor and a lie, he agrees to going through this ritual, a temple ritual. Now, the temple is still up and going at this time. This wasn't a sacrifice for sins that Paul is doing. This was a Nazarite vow. This was a personal commitment to the Lord, not a, a thing for forgiveness. And Paul takes this Nazarite vow. By the way, he's taken already the vow, but he goes in and they say in verse 20, if you, I didn't put the whole verse up here, but in chapter 21, in verse 20, that the Jews who believe in God, it says, are zealous for the law. There are many Jews that are zealous for the law and Paul is in agreement and happy about this. In verse 24, Paul then goes out of his way to show that he too is living in obedience to that same law and goes and makes this, this offering in the temple. Go read it in Acts 21. If Jesus taught that we shouldn't do these things, that they're all done with, why is Paul over and over and over seeming to say, hey, I, I want to be a part of the law and the festivals because these are the scriptures that testify of him. You know, have you heard that there are some today who are against the law of Moses? Are you aware of that? Have you heard that rumor? Because if you have, are you showing, are you going out of your way as Paul did to show that there's no truth to the fact that, you know, we should be saying that the law of Moses is, is of no effect. I'm not talking salvation here. It's not what I'm talking about. Okay, because just like Paul, he's coming in and say, hey, these people are saying that you don't care about Moses. Would they say about us, that about us? Would they say about th that about your church? I'll tell you, most churches today 
would say, yeah, no, uh, we're the ones telling you, and you shouldn't keep the law. There's a parallel there today. So let's get into the Feast of Tabernacles here. I, I think that's what I want to at least morally make you think about scripturally why we should be doing this, but let, let's look at what scripture says about it. First of all, it's called the Feast of Nations. Why? Well, it's called the Feast of Nations because this is the one festival out of all of them that Gentiles get to participate in. I love that. In Jerusalem, in your sukkah, these little shelters that you build, they will actually invite Gentiles into it any other day of the year. If you're a Gentile, you are not welcome into their home or their sukkah or anything else because, well, first of all, they wouldn't have a sukkah any other time, but you're a dirty Gentile. But on this festival, all nations are welcome. The tradition is, and it comes scripturally, there's some basis for it, that the, at the Tower of Babel, the, the world was split into 70 nations. So when Mount Sinai came and the, the law was given, that the law went out to all 70 nations. And, and you know, the, the tongues of fire that were also there, just like at Pentecost at Mount Sinai, went out to the 70 nations, to the world. Well... I love this because Yom Kippur was, remember I said Passover was for the individual, Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur was for the nation of Israel. And now Tabernacles is for not just the nation of Israel, but all nations. I think that that's prophetic because Yeshua, Jesus, you know who he's for? All nations. He's not just for Israel. He's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anymore. He is the God of all nations. Now, to some extent, he is just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's just the nations get to come into the sukkah. The nations join the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he becomes your God because you are adopted in. You become an heir and a co-heir with him. The other thing is it kind of makes Calvinism a little strange to me. Because this isn't the feast of the elect. It's the feast of nations. Gentile, welcomed in. So I think that this throughout all of the Old Testament was foreshadowing that Yeshua was going to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what we see in the book of Acts and Colossians and Ephesians, all of this, how he, he came to, to tear down that wall of separation. Romans, I mean, Paul over and over and over is talking about this. The Gentiles are welcomed in and they're like, what? This can't be. You know, in Acts Ten and Cornelius is welcomed in. It blows their mind. Yet it was foreshadowed that this was going to happen, even in, their, in the festival. The Feast of Nations. Look what it says here in Romans 2, 9 and 10. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. Okay? What's truth? 
just Jesus, just believing in him. I think it's more than that. But obey unrighteousness, indignation, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil. Of the Jew first, also of the, then of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that does good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans says this, that when salvation comes, who gets the reward first? The Jew. Then the Gentile, those nations invited in. Who gets punished first? Jew first. And then the nations. I also love Romans eleven fifteen. When we communed, I kind of mentioned this. If their rejection, the Jews... If the Jews' rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what he's saying is this, is when the Jews rejected Jesus, he said, I'm going to leave you this house desolate, right? And he, he opened the gospel up to the nations. Do you know that Paul, who was a preacher to the Gentiles, do you know that every time he went to a city, where did he go to preach first, Jews or Gentiles? Jews. Every single time. When they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles. He was even called a preacher to the Gentiles. though. Every single one, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. I find it very interesting in modern day Christianity, who do we preach first to? Gentiles and forget the Jew. You should have a heart for the Jew first. If they reject it, fine, yeah, then go on to the next guy next to him, but... You should have a heart for the Jew. I'll tell you what, understanding these festivals has helped me witness to Jews better than I've ever been able to in the past because I can speak their language a little bit, the biblical language. But it says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? What's going to happen when they do recognize Yeshua as their Savior? As we talked about last week in Zechariah, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. What's going to happen when Israel does repent and accept Yeshua as Messiah? Resurrection. Life from the dead. You see, we often focus on, oh, the Jews rejected Jesus, so now they're done. Now we're the church. It's called replacement theology. We've replaced Israel. That is a heresy. It's not biblical. Show it to me in the Bible. Okay? I know many people have been taught that. They may even believe that, but show me the scriptures that say that. You, you can't. I can show you all kinds of scriptures saying, we joined them. But my point is, is this. If their rejection was good news for you because you got welcomed in. What's going to happen when they repent? Life from the dead. You get rewarded. The resurrection comes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But you can't just focus on their rejection. You better be praying for their acceptance because there's good things waiting for you when they do accept it. I think tabernacles is a picture of that. It's a picture of when they are going to be accepted and life from the dead is going to take place. You're going to get to go and join and live with Yeshua. You'll see more of that next week as well. But 
what a beautiful picture. Salvation comes from the Jews' rejection, but the Lord's return comes from the Jews' acceptance. Remember Romans says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And then, as it is written, shall come true, right? All Israel will be saved. I love that. We need to be praying for our Jewish brothers. Because don't write them off and say, oh, they're rejected, we're done. No, pray for their acceptance of Yeshua. Because there's life in that. There's a blessing in that. And by the way, that's also Old Covenant too. It goes all the way back to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And just look at history. Always happens. So, remember, you're already saved. Salvation doesn't come at the end. All right? The rewards do. That's what it means. You were saved because, in a sense, the rejection of Yeshua by the Jews, the gospel came to you, but there are rewards at the end. And so, at the end times, when the Jews accept Christ, the nations will be blessed. This is why it is a feast of nations. Isaiah 4, 5, I think we've looked at that recently here, but again, those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. And all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, it says, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He'll cleanse the blood stains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. As we've been studying Revelation, especially the trumpets, I've been showing you, it is the ten plagues of Egypt, right? I mean, you've got locusts, you've got darkness, you've got waters turning to blood, uh, you've got the crops being destroyed, you've got it all. I mean, Revelation is so closely connected to the Exodus and the times of what were going on there. Pharaoh as a type of antichrist, uh, bondage being led out, but then they go out into the wilderness and God is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is a canopy of protection for them with this cloud to shade them. And then now we read in Isaiah talking about a future time that has not yet happened where he's going to be a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. He's going to be a canopy, a sukkah, in a sense, a protection for you. But it's kind of interesting here. It says, all recorded among the living, it says. Right there in the very first verse. That means the saved people. Right? Notice as well the blood stains. He's going to cleanse the blood stains of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and fire. Where? Jerusalem. Once he cleanses Jerusalem, then the sukkah comes. Then the canopy. There's a lot of Zionists and people who have this idea, This I really think it's a romantic love affair with the city of Jerusalem today. 
Don't get me wrong, I, I do love it. I love Israel. But as we've talked about before, it is an ungodly place filled with idol worship, filled with evil all around. I firmly believe the Jerusalem you know of today has got a dire future ahead of it for a time. A spirit of judgment, a spirit of fire, a spirit of cleansing that is going to come and clean it out so that the sukkah can come and be a protective canopy over it. Zionism without Yeshua is a curse. Zionism is that idea that, oh, they're Jews, we've got to get them back to their homeland. And there are many Christian organizations out there who spend all kinds of time and money, millions of dollars, to get Jews brought from whatever country to Jerusalem to get them back. They don't share the gospel with them at all. Though. But they think that they're doing God some big favor by getting them to Jerusalem. Listen, God can get them to Jerusalem. That's not the problem. The problem is they don't know the Lord Yeshua as their Messiah and Savior. What will their acceptance be? You see, right now they're still rejecting, rejecting Yeshua. When they come to accept Him, that's when the rewards come. That's when the sukkah comes. That's when the cleansing takes place. So, that's what you need to be praying for. This is also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's got many different names, all scriptural. Let me show you here in Exodus 23. Um, it says this in verses 14 through 16. This is a command that there are three times that the Israelites were supposed to come up to Jerusalem to worship God. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's what we call as pretty much Passover. And it takes place in the spring, usually our March or April, at the harvest of barley. It says, Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month of Abib, for, it is, for in it thou came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And then, verse 16, in the Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of thy labors. This is called Pentecost by the Greeks. Shavuot is the Hebrew term for it. And it takes place at the wheat harvest, about 50 days after, Pentecost, or after uh, Passover. So you have a barley harvest where one festival is at. And then a feast of ingathering when you gather in the wheat harvest, and that is Pentecost. The feast of first fruits, it's called, the first fruits of the wheat. And it says, um, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, that is now this fall one, which we are celebrating called Sukkot. Well, what are you gathering in the fall? It's not the barley. It's not the wheat, it's the fruit, the grapes. Which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. So it's called ingathering, not only because God is going to gather in the nations, but also it's the time that you gathered in the fruit of the land. 
All three are harvests, Passover for barley, Pentecost for wheat, Sukkot, the grapes, the fruit. Okay, so going to harvest the fruit. Do you think that when the Lord comes back, when he's looking for fruit, he's going to find fruit? What does Jesus say? A man is going to be judged by his fruit. A man is known by his fruit. Do you think when he's going to come, he's going to look for your fruit to see if you have it? You bet he is. Because if you don't have fruit, it means you don't know him. And so the fruit harvest is what this is about. Again, your fruit doesn't save you. What saves you is the evidence that you had fruit because the Spirit lived in you. You had a heart for it. Because let me tell you, as much good fruit as you have, I, I guarantee you, you've got a lot of bad fruit in your life too. But God doesn't care. You've been forgiven by Yeshua. Without Jesus, your fruit would have to be perfect. No bad apples on the tree at all. Because one bad apple makes you go to hell. With Yeshua, all the bad apples are covered but he's looking to see if you've got good fruit or not. All three, as I said, are at harvest times. Barley is winnowed. You basically take it, you throw it up in the air, it blows the chaff away, you winnow it. Wheat was, was tread upon, broken. If you get wheat to get it out, you can take it in your hand and you've got to kind of roll it around or trample on it. The oxen would go around and around, trample on it to break it, to get it out of the head of the wheat. Yeah. You go through a tribulation, a little beating. And then the grapes, well, the grapes, you crush them. Absolutely crush it. The last part of the harvest is to glean the four corners of your field as well, which I think is significant because of Revelation. He goes for the four corners of the earth to bring in the harvest there as well. Well, I find it interesting that in some senses here, the bar barley being winnowed and being thrown up in the air, it's a separation And we see a separation taking place because when you think of barley, Passover, this is when Jesus came, and you have those that will accept him as the Messiah and those that will not, a separation that's going to take place. And then what happens is those that do follow the Lord, okay, the, the, the part that doesn't, except Yeshua, that separated the chaff, it's gone. Then the wheat, you've got those that are going to go through a tribulation. You will be persecuted because of me. And you see that this is at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given. And those that, have, those that are the wheat that are harvested receive a gift of the Holy Spirit that empower them to live a life worthy of the calling. And then when the grape harvest comes... This is exactly what we read about in Revelation, and I'm going to show you a little bit more of that here in a moment. But Shavuot, Pentecost, is called the first fruits, the first fruit of the wheat harvest, okay? But you're going to see that Sukkot 
is called the Feast of Ingathering because it's the gathering of the fruit. Look what Revelation 14 says. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Thrust in thy sickle and reap a harvest here in Revelation, future times. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Do you think he's talking about just grapes? No, he's talking about souls of men. Another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Notice, two angels, two harvests. Just like we see in the parables, one is going to be taken into the barn, and the other is going to be crushed. So, I want you to see her grapes. That's significant because we know then that this harvest time is not the time at Passover with barley. It's not the time of Shavuot with wheat. It's a time of grape harvest. When's that? Oh, the Bible has already told us that is Sukkot, the Feast of Ingathering. So it almost seems that Revelation is telling you the timing that the Lord is going to come back possibly. In the fall. Is it just revelation? Well, I don't know. Let's keep looking at scripture. How about Isaiah 24, 13? So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. So we're talking about the fall here. They raise their voices. They shout for joy from the west. They acclaim the Lord's majesty. You see, this is talking, if you go look in Isaiah this is end times. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 25. The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. Sounds like a cleansing of Jerusalem. Cleansing the bloodstains of Jerusalem. <coughs> he will shout like those who tread the grapes. Shout against all who live on the earth. See, he's talking about people here. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword. He's going to crush the ungodly, a bloody judgment. Joel 3.13, swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, just like what Revelation 14 said. Come, trample the grapes. For the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. And then in Revelation, we see the, the winepress of God's fury, the wrath. Clearly, the fall festivals that we are in are a picture of end times and judgment or rewards, depending on the fruit. What is he going to find? It's also a time of rejoicing. Leviticus 23, when it talks about this festival, says on the 15th day of the seventh month, tomorrow, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. That's why we're camping out for seven days. It says then, on the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. So really, Monday is to be a Sabbath. Sunday night to Monday night is to be a Sabbath of rest. You're not supposed to work. And the last day, basically next Saturday night 
through Sunday night. Well, actually, it would it be Friday night to Saturday night, I think. It's supposed to be rest. Am I right on that? Monday, Monday. Okay. Monday, Sunday to Monday. That's the eighth yeah. day, though. Okay. So anyway, point being, on the eighth, yeah, the eighth day and the first day are to be a Sabbath of rest. It says, ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. That's why we're going to build a sukkah out here. Okay? Decorate it with bows of our stuff. And we're supposed to remember, because this is what God's word said to do. Now, there's reasons for this. We'll talk about that later. It's not just do it because he said to do it, although we should do it just because he said to do it, but find Jesus in it. Remember when Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, they're laying down these things in front of him, aren't they? Yeah. Well, how can there be an eighth day if this is a seven-day festival? It's the same way at Passover. It's seven days, but they have an eighth day added on to it. Same thing here. They've got the last, a great day of celebration to kind of close it out. And next week, you're going to see how Jesus fulfills this. It's beautiful. I love it. So, tabernacle... Really, what this was to do was to show us that God had a plan, and that plan was to live with his people. We've seen that the Feast of Trumpets, hey, the Lord is coming back, Day of Atonement, Judgment Day, and now Tabernacles, he's going to bring in the fruit. Some of it gets trampled because there is no good fruit, and then the good fruit gets brought in, and God's going to live with you. He's going to sukkah over you, protect you. Now, I cannot prove this biblically to the date. All I can say is that it's around this time that what we see that these festivals do line up nicely with the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai and the law being given. Remember, these fall festivals are all taking place in a 15-day period. The first month, first day, we get trumpets. On the 10th day, you get atonement. On the 15th day, you have uh, tabernacles. A short period. There's a short period of time that when Moses goes, he comes the mountain, and then the commandments are given, and they build a tabernacle. You can see that it is around the time of Pentecost that Moses reaches Mount Sinai. Because the Bible says they left Israel, Egypt at Passover. We know that at Mount Sinai, just like at Passover, tongues of fire go out. That's biblical. We know that at Mount Sinai, when Moses comes down, the golden calf event takes place and he drops and breaks the commandments of God and he goes down and 3,000 people are killed under the law. We know at Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved under the Spirit. There are many parallels between Pentecost and Mount Sinai. What's interesting, though, is that when Moses goes up, he gets the commandments. You go 50 days, you know, uh, to get from Passover to Pentecost. They leave Egypt at Passover. 50 days later, roughly, 
we're seeing coming down the mountain, Pentecost. And then what does Moses bring down the mountain? He doesn't just bring the law. He also brings blueprints for the tabernacle. And he says, see to it that you make it exactly like I've shown you on the mountain. And so the Israelites start building a tabernacle. The patterns are there. He says this in Exodus 25, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What was the point of the tabernacle? To live among them. What is the point of our sukkahs, the tabernacles? This is called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's because God wants to make this a time of rejoicing when he's going to live with you. It is a time when you are to leave your homes, go out and live in your, your sukkahs to remember that God is with you. He's going to be there. He's your protection. You're outside your, your walled cities, your walled homes, your, 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 your safety, and now you're trusting him. And he, it's a picture of him dwelling with you. Now, granted, these are the sukkahs. That's a picture of all of that. We are the tabernacle now. The Bible tells us that as well. He lives with you. We have all of that, but I'm not going to get into all of, the, uh, all of it tonight. But I want you to see a couple of other parallels. We know that Jesus is a type of Moses, just like he's a type of Joseph, a type of David, and so on. But it's interesting because the Bible prophesied that there would be one like Moses that would come. Speaking of Jesus. So, Moses came down the mountain twice. Jesus is coming out of heaven twice. The first time he came down, Moses, the people were not ready for him. They weren't expecting him. They kind of gave up on him. And so the commandments were broken when Moses came down. Dropped them and they, and they were shattered. Now, by the way, this one, God wrote with his hands, and God also cut the stones out of the mountain on that one. Well, the first time Jesus comes down, the people weren't ready for him. They broke his commandments. The next time Jesus comes is going to be the Day of Atonement or Judgment Day. The next time Moses comes down the mountain, it seems like it would have been around that time of the atonement. As a matter of fact, what did Moses do? He comes down, they broke the commandment, and he goes up the mountain to do what? Make atonement for them. Blot me out of this book. Okay, But he goes to make atonement. So... Just as the people's sins were atoned for by Moses on his trip down, okay, after his first one, Jesus comes down his first trip, goes back up to heaven, his blood goes into the heavenly tabernacle, he makes atonement for you. Likewise, the first time Moses comes down, like I said, the people weren't ready. The Pharisees, when Jesus were there, they weren't ready for him. Moses broke the commandments as Jesus removed the condemnation of the law at his first coming. Okay. The law was broken. Jesus, in a sense, broke the condemnation of the law, didn't he, on his first coming. The second time Moses came down, 
The people were prepared when Jesus came, comes a second time. Judgment will take place as well as rewards. In Moses' day, the law was a requirement. But in Jesus' day, it is fulfilled by Yeshua so that now it's not something that God makes us do, but rather it's the law that's on our hearts. We find delight in it. It's in our heart to follow it. It's man's choice to follow it. Possibly that's why Moses, the first time God wrote it, God gave the commandments, God's rock, everything, he comes down, boom, it's broke. He goes back up again, just like Jesus came down the first time, and as I said, he took, the condemnation of the law is broken. He goes back up and he brings down something that's supposed to be from the heart, from you. Because on this one, God said, I want you to cut out this rock and write the commandments. I'll write the commandments. It'll be my laws, but you have to put the stone. You have to make what I'm going to put the, the commandments on. And I think that's a picture of what we're seeing here. I'm going to close out with Second Chronicles and another little biblical connection here. Solomon dedicates the tabernacle or the temple that he builds on the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, The temple was dedicated on the Feast of Tabernacles. Solomon does it at that day. We know that. And it seems that when Moses came down the mountain, they dedicate the tabernacle on the Feast of Tabernacles as well. I don't when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I love that. Every time. We'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about the tabernacle. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good. His mercy endures forever. Goes on in verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests attended to their services. The Levites also with the instruments of music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. Are they talking about his condemnation is always there? It was about mercy. They understood the tabernacle was about mercy. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and fat. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days. This is the feast of Sukkot. And all Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. So Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, says there was a place above in a place below, just like there is a place above in Jerusalem, the temple up there, and there's the one down here on earth, you. 
It goes on in verse 9. And on the eighth day, this final one we're going to talk about next week, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days in the feast, seven days, on the 23rd day of the seventh month, okay, the month he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done. This is supposed to be joyful because God has been merciful to us. He now wants to live with you. He has taken away the condemnation. The day of atonement has come. He has judged and found you worthy, innocent, fruitful. Zechariah 14, speaking of end times now, not just the days of Solomon, it says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, that's Jerusalem, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, which cleaves in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, half towards the south. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, catch that, all the nations, we're at the Feast of Nations, which came up against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to do what? To keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Guys, we're doing it and we're rejoicing. But let me tell you, in the end times, even the ungodly are going to someday come and keep this feast. If they don't, they don't get rain. Right now, we get a choice to choose to, to celebrate. But if we're not supposed to do this, why is Zechariah 14, speaking of end times, because the Lord hasn't put his feet down on Mount Olives like this yet. The Mount of Olives has not been split in two. This is future. And it's saying, you're going to celebrate this. Wouldn't it be nice to kind of know what you're doing? Know why you're doing it? Wouldn't it be nice to rehearse Make this a, a mikra, a, a holy festival. Is that why God said that these are to be a festival, an, a lasting ordinance forever? Because we're going to be doing this. And I think that's the benefit of it. You're going to understand these, the, the scriptures better by doing this. It shall be that those whoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord of hosts, even upon them, shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that comes not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations." You're starting to see why it's called the Feast of Nations? I don't care if you're a believer or not. You're going to celebrate the Feast of Nations because it's for all of them that come not up to the Feast of Tabernacles. I think so. I think so. Yep. <clears throat> so, you can see why it's called that. Last slide. Revelation 21.3 and, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
Do you think maybe you're going to understand Revelation 21 a little bit more by celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, what this is all about? If you don't know anything about this, those of you listening, what is this? How are you understanding Revelation? How are you understanding Zechariah 14? How are you understanding anything in the Bible if you don't know these biblical festivals? He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Man, I can't wait. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm celebrating this week, folks. And I hope it pumps you up to do the same because this is what we're looking forward to. And part two of this, I get excited about because we're going to see Yeshua doing it and, and what we really have to look forward to. 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, by the way, your earthly house is going to be dissolved someday, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, not this flesh, but eternal in the heavens. 2 Peter 1.13-14, As long as I am in this tabernacle, this body, this flesh, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. What? In remembrance? Knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. There's a day you're going to put this off, and you will tabernacle with Him in Jerusalem, and there will be a sukkah over you. And I am, I can't wait. Anymore, I hear about people losing loved ones, and I'm a little jealous. Watsons aren't here because uh, one of their relatives died, and so he's off to Georgia. And he said that too. He says, I'm a little jealous. And so I don't blame you. So that's what we have to look forward to. Let's pray.